Deceptions podcast. So you see, the merchant said to me, that's right, isn't it? And I said, that's right. But when I got home and reckoned it out, I was six drachmas short. Oh, six drachmas? Well, really, Freddy. Well, I'm sorry, Andrew. I'm very sorry, everybody. Right. I dare say you are. But here's me and my brother, Andrew, and, and both the Zebedees, John and James, Working all night with the nets to get a living for the lot of us. Yes. And, and then you, Philip, go and let yourself be swindled by the first cheating salesman you meet in the bazaar. Well, I told you I'm sorry, Simon. Master, I'm very sorry. Oh. Well, it sounded all right when he worked it out. The fact is, Philip, my boy, you've been had for a sucker. Oh, you're right, <laughs> Yes. Let him ring the changes on you proper. You ought to keep your eyes skin, Philip. You ought to really... If I was to tell you the dodges these fellows have up their sleeve, you'd be surprised. Oh, very likely, Matthew, but never having been a tax... That's a scene from a 1975 BBC recording of The Man Born to be King by Dorothy L. Sayers. In it, we heard some of Jesus' disciples talking about a swindle in rather common vernacular. The Man Born to be King was a cycle of 12 plays about the life of Christ. My buff loves these plays and she has them on Audible. So darling, this one's for you. When the plays were first broadcast in December 1941, there was a massive backlash against the BBC. Audiences were used to the King James Bible and the reverent, austere beauty of its language. This was something else. Cockney accents, street talk. It made headlines across London. The Daily Mail ran with BBC Life of Christ play in US slang. The Daily Herald's headline read, Gangsterisms in Bible play. (laughs) Prime Minister Winston Churchill and Archbishop of Canterbury Cosmo Gordon Lang were swamped with letters pushing for the plays to be taken off air. There was even a question about the plays in the House of Commons. Atheists complained that Christians were being given free radio time for propaganda. Christians protested the play's irreverence. The Lord's Day Observance Society complained, A sinful man presuming to impersonate the sinless one? It detracts from the honour due to the divine majesty. Dorothy L. Sayers was even accused of intensifying World War II. One complainant wrote that the degradation of an actor impersonating Christ could be linked to the fall of Hong Kong and the, quote, beginning of the decline of our empire. Christians are sometimes such idiots. Of course, Sayers expected her plays might upset people. She wrote at the time, People will be shocked, and rightly. We are prepared for our Lord to be born into the language of the authorised version, or into stained glass or paint. We are not prepared for him to be incarnate. That is, in real human flesh. Despite the fallout, millions of people heard the Gospels in a way that sounded much closer to their experience of everyday life than they were used to from the pulpit. 
It became Sayer's crusade to pierce the indifference of the British public toward Christianity with the gospel story she knew to be true, what she called the greatest drama ever staged. While she was alive, Karl Barth, the great German theologian, called her one of the most outstanding British theologians. And when she died, C.S. Lewis apparently wept. It's time we knew more about Dorothy L. Sayers, one of the 20th century's great undeceivers. I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. This season of Undeceptions is sponsored by Zondervan Academic. Get discounts on master lectures, video courses, and exclusive samples of their books at zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write Undeceptions. Each episode here at Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, philosophy, history, science, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. And with the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. This episode of Undeceptions is proudly brought to you by Zondervan Academic's new book, Know the Theologians, written by podcast alumni Jennifer Powell McNutt and David McNutt. The McNutts invite us to meet the theological giants of the centuries, whose ideas have shaped not just Christianity, but also our world, whether you're a believer or a doubter. They cover a dozen or more pivotal figures spanning Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholics, and the Protestant traditions. This book is an excellent, readable introduction to the biggest names in Christian thinking. Whether you're embarking on a personal quest for knowledge or seeking a material for a kind of book club, I honestly reckon Know the Theologians has you covered. Each chapter is packed with insights, reflection questions, and recommended readings. You can order your copy of Know the Theologians today on Amazon, of course, or visit zondervan.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash undeceptions, and you can learn more. Amy, some of my listeners won't know a thing about Dorothy L. Sayers, so in a few sentences, if that's possible, sum up her significance for people today. So Dorothy L. Sayers was born in 1893, just so listeners get a sense. Her, her main kind of writing career is in the between the 1920s and up to just after the Second World War, 1940s. She was an author. She was quite prolific, so she wrote best-selling detective fiction. She and Agatha Christie were the kind of main writers of the golden age of detective fiction. Her most famous detective was a guy called Lord Peter Whimsey. And she also broadcast on the radio a lot. So she was a, a kind of voice of a public intellectual, if you like. She wrote plays as well, which were performed in cathedrals and on stages, as well as on the radio. 
and she wrote essays and theological books too towards the end of her life and then quite interestingly that's my friend and friend of the pod dr amy or ewing a theologian and author of books like why trust the bible and where is god in all the suffering Amy is often travelling the world, speaking at universities, businesses, parliaments and on TV and radio about the deep questions of our day that might have meaningful answers in the Christian faith. Amy actually examined the life and work of Dorothy L. Sayers in her PhD. Uh, sorry, her D-Phil at the University of Oxford back in 2017. Her life, And then quite interestingly, she turned her hand to medieval Italian and translated Dante into English for Penguin, into a sort of popular format so that millions of people actually read Dante because of her. What a lot of people don't know about her as well is she was in the first cohort of women to be at Oxford, she got a top degree, but women weren't allowed to graduate in, in her era. But she was in that first cohort of women upon whom Oxford gave her a degree. So that was in the 19, early 1920s. Straight out of university, she went to work in the advertising industry. Wow. And she came up with the slogan, it pays to advertise, and all sorts of other slogans about Guinness and mustard that you might know of. So she was a, a sort of popular... Not be Guinness, it's good for you. Yes. No. She's behind that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But how about you? Have you proved the goodness in a Guinness? There's only one way to do it. Try a Guinness a day for a while and enjoy proving that Guinness is good for you. Sayers started working for Benson's advertising agency in 1922, and she stayed for nine years. She worked on an enormously successful campaign for Coleman's Mustard, creating bus posters asking, has father joined the Mustard Club? Coleman's had to hire 10 people to deal with the 2,000 applications a day they received to join the club. Club members received a special mustard badge, and half a million badges were given away by the time the campaign had ended. Amazing. A mustard club. Has father joined the Undeceptions Plus Club? Uh, I'm not sure it'll work. Anyway, that's something for you to work on, Producer Kelly. While still working at Benson's, Sayers wrote her first detective novel, titled Whose Body, featuring her world-famous main character, Lord Peter Whimsey. I almost feel we should synchronise our watches before going up the drive. Or over the top, my lord. Bunker, how do you suppose a retired colonel's razor came to cut the throat of a professional dancing partner? Yes, an intriguing question, Lord. And one requiring a certain delicacy of approach. Well, all I can say is, damn it, is a damned ungentlemanly business going and asking a fellow's barber questions behind his back. And as for being mixed up in the death of some dago, you ought to be ashamed of yourself for interfering with the police. That's their business. Awfully sorry, sir. The trouble is, uh, detecting is my hobby. A fellow has to have a hobby of some kind. Well, I dare say. Oh, my God, he's taking up golf. That's an excerpt from the 1987 BBC television adaptation of Dorothy L. Sayers' mystery, Have His Carcass, 
which she wrote in 1932. Sayers is best known for her detective fiction, a commemorative plaque outside her home in Bloomsbury, London, just reads, Dorothy Sayers, writer of detective stories, lived here. Her signature protagonist, Lord Peter Whimsey, has been described in The Atlantic as a scion of the aristocracy, military hero, buoyant connoisseur of wine, rare books, piano music and women. In the clip we just heard, Lord Whimsey is played by British stalwart of the screen, Edward Peterbridge, who is in the middle of cracking a case. Actually, Have His Carcass is quite the complex mystery, and this BBC adaptation was an instant classic. Fantastic actors bringing to life Sayers' quick wit and clever plots. Sayers began to write detective novels in what people call the golden age of detective fiction. She became known as one of the four queens of crime, a short list that also included, of course, Agatha Christie. Why did she go into detective fiction? Was that just all the rage at the time or was she doing something more sociological or even theological? Interesting question. (laughs) Um, I mean, ostensibly, partly to make money, I mean, she, so she was a single woman working in this advertising agency, which she kind of was over it after a couple of years. And, and she had this incredible creative ability and she came out with the novels, but they were financially successful. They made her financially independent, which for an unmarried woman was enormously important. Her father was a clergyman, so that gives you a sense of, you know, social status. But as I have sort of studied her work and my interest has been in her work as a whole and it looks quite disparate across the genres so you've got this extremely popular best-selling detective literature and then you have religious plays which became so popular when they were put on in cathedrals that the train company in Britain had to lay on more trains to get people to the cathedral to see these plays live. And then through to quite erudite essays and a book on the Trinity that she wrote called The Mind of the Maker. So one of the things I wanted to do was look at her work as a whole and ask the question, is it just, you know, random that she kind of goes from one thing to another or is there a unifying theme? And I think in the detective fiction, you see this interest in a person looking at evidence and coming across imposter narratives, stories about what happened that turn out not to be true. And then realizing through putting the pieces together that there's a pattern. But she does that all in a narrative format in the context of a story. Mm. And then you go on to look at her religious plays and there, the interest behind her, her initial plays sort of centres the idea that theology is story, it's narrative. And, you know, at the heart of certainly the Christian faith is the incarnation, God actually entering history in a human being and a life lived before other people, which is a story electrified almost as a drama on a stage. So... Yeah, I think there's all sorts of nuance there in the detective fiction where she's beginning to explore concepts of how truth is revealed and discovered and how you discern between truth and error. So um, my favourite of her detective fiction is Gordy Knight, which is set here in Oxford. And 
it's set in a women's college, which obviously was a world she knew well. Mm-hmm. And she, oh, it, it will spoil it for the readers if they haven't no, read it. Just go for it, go for it. <laughs> um, Seriously, you should go and read a few Dorothy L. Sayers detective novels. And if you think you might, skip over this next bit. We've got some spoilers. Producer Kaylee wishes she hadn't heard this part of the interview. Um, so the whole thing hangs on these disturbances that happen in the college. It isn't actually a murder in this particular novel, but lots of horrible disturbances, poison notes and things being destroyed, items of preciousness to different individual characters being destroyed. And Harriet Vane is the hero who works alongside Peter Whimsey. And it's her college, she comes back to stay. And essentially, you've got this group of women who work together in community, a scholarly community, who are in pursuit of truth. You know, they're all pursuing their different different areas of learning. And they're then disturbed by these kind of forces from outside that are disrupting relationships that are bringing poison into relationships and and causing great anxiety and distress and it's very it's very well written and very well drawn relationship between women explored and intellectual women that's quite unusual you don't often see that in literature anyway the whole thing hangs on the the culprit for the disturbances is is another woman who is working in the college as a as a, a at the domestic level, working kind of what, what you'd call here a scout, kind of cleaning and and sorting things out for these academic women. And it turns out that her husband had written a thesis, which had ignored a, a or had intentionally left out piece of evidence that he had found that had contradicted his thesis and he'd hoped no one would find it. So it hadn't gone into a footnote that should have gone in. One of the women scholars at this college says envisages had written an article exposing this academic fraud. And the man had then lost his position, lost his job and had killed himself. So his woman is then, his wife is then destitute, children suffer. On this point of absolute, randomly, apparently irrelevant detail in the academic sphere. And the woman who's written this article has no idea that this has happened. She's just done it in the pursuit of truth. So the question is, how much does truth matter? And what are the implications of truth mattering in the lives of people? And is it better to be pragmatic or does the pursuit of truth and detail matter enough? that someone could lose their life over it. Hmm. So it's a fascinating question yeah. because Sayer's whole whole life is all around the pursuit of truth. Sayer's published 12 detective novels between 1923 and 1937. This is the stuff she's best known for. But crime writing was only a small part of her creative output. Financially secure, Sayers turned her pen to theology. In 1937, she was asked to write a play for the Canterbury Festival. It's a festival that's still running. 
She called the play The Zeal of Thy House, and it ended up running for 100 performances, moving from Canterbury to London's West End. Zeal of Thy House was the first in a series of plays that showcased Sayer's unusual communication of Christian belief. She found herself hounded by the press. Best-selling crime author now writes religious plays. It was a story. In a letter of the time, Sayers expressed her frustration that some people seem to think it indecent that a detective writer would deal in religion. Our voice actor today is actually one of my students here at Wheaton College, Maisie Redman, who, as it turns out, is a family friend of Amy or Ewing. Thanks, Maisie. Anyway, according to Amy, Sayers believed there could be nothing more stimulating for a playwright than Christian doctrine, the key concepts of Christianity. Of course, the story of God becoming man would make for gripping stage drama. The incarnation, said Sayers, is the most dramatic thing that ever entered into the mind of man. To prove this, though, Sayers believed she needed to separate faith from the type of pious self-righteousness and political self-interest that she thought was infecting many churches around her. In a newspaper article around the time of the Zeal of Thy House tour, she wrote... Let us in heaven's name drag out the divine drama from under the dreadful accumulation of slipshod thinking and trashy sentiment heaped upon it and set it on an open stage to startle the world into some sort of vigorous reaction. If the pious are the first to be shocked, so much the worse for the pious. Others will enter the kingdom of heaven before them. Woo! I love her style. After The Zeal of Thy House came the offer for a BBC series of radio plays all about Jesus, which Sayers called The Man Born to Be King. And that's what we heard at the top of the show. Her play cycle called The Man Born to Be King, which was extremely controversial. There were headlines. is listening to that. And absolutely, it just only came across it recently. Oh, wow. And okay. is listening to it on Audible. Yeah. And absolutely loves it. So it was unbelievably controversial at the time. There were headlines in the Daily Mail that, you know, American style slang in the mouth of the Lord type of thing. Yeah. Because what she's doing is is positioning the story of Jesus in the everyday language of British people at the time. So it's taking, taking the story of of the incarnation and saying, we're taking it out of the rarefied King James, mm. la-di-da, totally irrelevant religious sphere and placing it into human lived experience. And that, that that brought headlines. You know, she, the Mary Whitehouse style campaigners campaigned against her. Whoa. Yeah. So that at the time- Mary Whitehouse, by the way, was a very famous and influential British social activist, a moral campaigner, you might say. They thought, this is blasphemous, this is awful. But the impact of The Man Born to be King was that millions of people listened to this play and heard the ideas and the teaching of Jesus in a way that was relevant to them and were electrified. 
As a playwright, Sayers firmly believed that her role was entirely different from that of a preacher or priest. She could present the story of the Christian faith to people without the need to argue or persuade. And that's frankly how she preferred it. She didn't intend to be a public Christian, someone who advocated for the Christian faith. Years after the first performance of The Man Born to be King, Sayers wrote, I never, so help me God, wanted to get entangled in religious apologetics, or to bear witness to Christ, or to proclaim my faith to the world, or anything of that kind. It was an honest piece of work about something I really knew. But the man born to be king turned out to be a far-reaching innovation. Never before had people heard the words of Jesus in language they heard on the street. It brought the Gospels to life in a way that demanded an imaginative response. Over two million people heard the plays on the BBC. The man born to be king cemented Sayers as a religious commentator, whether she liked it or not. Stay with us. Imagine a world where you have to worry each day about where you're going to get clean water, where access to clean water is literally a lifeline. In the East African nation of Burundi, that is the sad reality. 86% of the population lives in extreme poverty, and more than half the children under five suffer from frequent diarrheal diseases due to lack of clean water. Anglican Aid is working on the ground with local organisations to change this. They're improving natural springs to give local families clean drinking water, which, can you believe this, cuts their medical bills by 30%. Now, for Aussies, the end of the financial year is approaching. Yes, American friends, the Aussie financial year is almost as weird as yours. For Aussies, this is a great time to make a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid. For the rest of the world, when isn't a good time to help families in Burundi access clean water? Will you please head to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash underceptions and make a donation before the 30th of June if you're an Aussie or, you know, if you're anywhere in the world, because every donation makes a huge difference. That's anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions. Thanks so much. We are so grateful to our friends at Morling College for their support of the Undeceptions podcast. And they've just launched Morling to Go a free series of short courses for you to explore key questions about the Christian faith, like why believe in God? That's a good one. How can a good God let bad things happen? Or simply, why Jesus? You can check out the free Mauling to Go series and other study options hand-picked specifically for Undeceptions listeners. Just go to mauling.edu.au forward slash Undeceptions. Mauling, by the way, is spelt M-O-R-L-I-N-G dot E-D-U dot A-U forward slash Undeceptions. (laughs) 
Can I read you a quote? Yeah. From、um, something Dorothy says wrote, and then ask you to expound it. Its significance for her, her way of thinking. So that is the outline of the official story: the talk of the time when God. The talk the of the time when God was the underdog and got beaten, when He submitted to the conditions He had laid down and became man, like the men He had made, and the men He had made broke Him and killed Him. This is the dogma we find so dull. This terrifying drama of which God is the victim and hero. Mm-hmm. If this is dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? <laughs> love it. Yes, I love that quote. John, that absolutely sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah, that's classic. Sayers, succinct, compelling, drawing on this idea of story and drama. And im- and so imagination and creativity and truth not just being kind of sterile concepts but lived in history, and then drawing our attention to the central claim of Christianity, which is the incarnation, in in Sayers's view at least, and trying to say at, at least be you know at least consider. What the Christian story actually is—that that God enters history and how amazing that would be if so. God as victim、yeah. and hero. Yes. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah. Dorothy Sayers had now made a decisive move away from detective fiction and into religious playwriting. Radio, in particular, was a medium Sayers could use to, as she put it, break down the convention of unreality surrounding our Lord's person and might. Sayers strongly felt that the British public were being deceived about Christ and his story. They needed a little undeception. It's as if Christ wasn't born into history; he was born into the Bible, authorized version, a place where nobody makes love, or gets drunk, or cracks jokes, or talks slang, or cheats, or despises his neighbours. No wonder the story makes so little impression on the common man. It seems to have taken place in a world quite different from our own, a world full of reverent people, waiting about in polite attitudes for the fulfilment of prophecies. And her new approach of writing the story, the drama of Christianity, was having an impact. Am I right that she wasn't comfortable with the role of a public defender of Christianity? And if that's right, why did she end up, you know, sort of being a public defender of Christianity? Yeah, so it's interesting. She, I mean, she kind of says yes and no in different letters at different times. So I think it was a struggle for her, and there are various reasons for that in her personal life, which we which we might come on to. The head of the BBC at the time, a guy called Welch, wrote to the then Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple. And he said, C.S. Lewis and Dorothy L. Sayers are the two people who can put forward a reasonably orthodox view of Christianity today in a way that you know people find compelling. We should give them the Lambeth Doctorate,、mm. and a move was was made to to offer Sayers the Lambeth Doctorate on that basis. So, and it's a very prestigious. Oh, doctorate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're so. 
The Lambeth Doctorate is an honour bestowed by the Archbishop of Canterbury on those who have served the church in a particularly distinguished way. The Archbishop of Canterbury has been able to award degrees like this since 1533. But they're not that common. The current Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, has conferred the degree just twice in his 10 years in the job. Yeah, so you're... So you know, senior, senior people, another person who had a chair in theology here agreed. So you've got you've got serious people at the time saying, here is someone who can just articulate the Christian faith in a way that connects with people. Um, but say, as we'll say in letters, no, 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 I'm just an author. And, yeah. you know, she didn't want to be perceived. I mean, C.S. Lewis did the same thing. Exactly. There, is it more than British... Reserve. Reserve and humility? Exactly. So, well, with Sayers, another amazing part of her work was her writing on work. So she wrote three essays on work. And she viewed herself primarily as an author and a writer. That was her work, right? So her income came from from her writing. She didn't want to be seen as a sort of public representative of the ecclesiastical establishment. She was perfectly happy to be a public intellectual who happened to be a Christian, but her work was her writing and she felt that as a human being, you should just do the work that you're gifted to do to the best of your ability and that that itself would point to the Trinitarian God. That was part of her way of of thinking. Um, You mentioned the Lambeth Doctorate, which she turned down. Am I right? Yes. And I think part of the reason was, you know, a scandal, potential scandal in her life. Yeah. Not wanting to draw attention to herself. Can, can we sort of wind back Scroll a little back. bit yeah. and talk about the circumstances of that sure. to the degree that we know? Yeah. So Sayers went to Oxford and, well, her, her own sort of Christian journey is documented in her letters and she, you know, began to read the New Testament in Greek as a as a young teenager. She loved G.K. Chesterton. She I think found... we should just pause there. <laughs> Listeners. Come on. <laughs> that's a proper education right there. Okay. Yeah, so, exactly. G.K. Chesterton was a late 19th and early 20th century English critic and author. He's one of the most prolific English writers of all time, and we are definitely going to do an episode on him. He wrote about 80 books, making contributions in 200 more, hundreds of poems, five plays, five novels, 200 short stories, and about 4,000 newspaper essays. I'm exhausted just saying it. He wrote detective fiction with characters like Father Brown, a crime-solving priest. You may have seen the adaptation on the telly. He's considered one of the most influential Christian thinkers of the 20th century. C.S. Lewis writes in his autobiography that G.K. Chesterton's writings played a major role in his own conversion. When Chesterton died, Dorothy L. Sayers wrote to his widow saying... GK's books have become more a part of my mental makeup than those of any writer you could name. In particular, Sayers admired Chesterton's classic work on the basics of Christian belief, the masterpiece, truly a masterpiece, titled Orthodoxy. And I am holding up my beaten up, highlighted version in my hand right now. Look at that. All those little highlights. So amazing. <laughs> 
and then went to work in the advertising agency. And while she was there in her 20s, she fell in love with a man called John Cornus, who was part of the Bloomsbury set. And he was an, an author as well and not a Christian. And so they had this very involved relationship and exchanged letters, etc. And Sayers wouldn't sleep with him before marriage on the basis of her Christian convictions and also wouldn't use contraception because, you know, she was an Anglican and that was the teaching of the church at the time. And so there's this very involved back and forth between them and eventually they separated on the basis that she wouldn't sleep with him without marriage. He then went off to America and within a few months got married. And he'd said to her, I will never get married on principle. And that's why they'd separated. Mm -hmm. And so it emerged from their letters that he had wanted her to surrender on that point and then probably would have married her. And so she was utterly devastated by this. She really, really loved him. And on the basis of that, she fell into a liaison with a motorbike mechanic because she didn't love him, she did sleep with him. She became pregnant and no one knew. So she's working in the advertising agency and hiding. Everyone thought she'd got rather fat, but she just sort of wore bigger clothes. She hid the pregnancy. She didn't want her parents to know. Her father, obviously, a clergyman. And she trusted one person, her cousin, Ivy, who fostered children. She gave birth alone and her cousin took on the the child called John and she went back to work the next week and carried on with her life. And she supported her son financially. They had a relationship and eventually he he did know that she was the mother. But it was a, a very, very painful episode in her life, obviously, and she just didn't want her parents to, to, to find out and be upset. So... When she was offered the Lambeth Doctorate much later on and she'd emerged as this phenomenal kind of figure of, of, of thinker and writer, I think she, she writes in one particular letter that, although I don't think you're offering this to make me a kind of, you know, representative of sanctity in some way, but I, I wouldn't want your first woman DD to let the church down, essentially. Oh. Yeah. So, so was this scandal a public scandal? No, oh. not till much later. Right. Yeah, so it was not. It didn't come out. Right. Although, but it did come out in her lifetime. But when you say come out, so her was it just son sort of hushed knew. About yeah, her mm. son knew, but the people that colleagues that she worked with in her lifetime didn't know. No. Mm. Wow. So um, it's all in her letters and everything, which yeah. obviously published after her yeah, life. So, yeah. yeah. Sayers declined the Lambeth Doctorate. And it wasn't just because of her concerns over the secret she carried. In her letter to the Archbishop declining the honour, she wrote, I have come to the conclusion that it would be better for me not to accept the doctorate. There are certain practical considerations. The first, and perhaps the most cogent from the Church's point of view, is this, that any good I can do in the way of presenting the Christian faith to the common people is bound to be hampered and impeded the moment I carry any sort of ecclesiastical label. In the present peculiar state of public opinion, it is the outsider, with neither dog collar nor professional standing in the church, who can sometimes carry the exterior defensive positions 
by the mere shock of a surprise assault. But the power to do this depends largely on remaining a freelance. That's an amazing set of statements, and we'll put a link to the full correspondence between Sayers and Archbishop William Temple in the show notes. They went back and forth quite a few times. Sayers distanced herself from the institutional church. She thought the church had made Christianity boring. She was on a campaign to make it what it ought to be fascinating. She she has lots of interesting statements about... (laughs) how boring the church has made Christianity (laughs) and how disgusted she is by that concept of making Christianity boring. Can you talk about that? Yeah. What what was her problem with Christianity, you know, public Christianity in that time? And what was her, you know, true vision of Christianity? So she was, Sayers was, was an Anglican and was obviously a laywoman in, in the Anglican Church. And you've got to remember, this is a time where that demythologized Jesus hmm. is kind of popular in Anglican circles. And and the, this sort of hesitance, I guess, about being definite at all about any category, let alone kind of creedal categories. And she just felt that this utterly insipid, totally convictionless gospel and preaching that 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 one would come across in churches if one attended at all was an absolute scandal she talked about how the incarnation was the greatest story to have staggered the human imagination and if it were not true it would be the greatest story to ever be written in and of itself so the idea that you could take something so utterly earth-shattering and surround it with an atmosphere she called it an atmosphere of tedium one famous quote she talks about how the church has taken the lion of Judah and effectively paired his claws to make him a, a petting cat for pale curates and pious old ladies. <laughs> so she's, she sort of, she talks with, she writes and spoke with this tremendous conviction about the Jesus of history being God with us and how that would be the subject of the most mind-altering, wonderful drama. And, and, and if it were true, obviously it would, it would change everything. And she did believe it, it was true and the case could be made for it being true. But, but as a story in and of itself, it's utterly, utterly compelling. So she was captivated by the incarnation. She felt that the creeds themselves, that dogma, And the doctrines of the church, she famously said, the dogma is the drama. So the idea that the dogma is this dry, awful, dusty thing, she's saying, no, it's it's utterly dramatic and it it, it shapes and changes everything. And, you know, civilizations could rise and fall on the basis of this dogma. In 1942, Sayers wrote a fan letter to C.S. Lewis. Lewis would later say that Sayers was the first person of importance who ever wrote me a fan letter. I liked her, he said, for the extraordinary zest and edge of her conversation, as I like a high wind. The pair struck up a friendship. They'd review each other's work honestly and sometimes brutally. 
When Lewis was later asked which texts he turned to for help in living as a Christian, he listed The Man Born to be King as one of his favourite sources of inspiration. He said he read it every year in the lead up to Easter. I'm thinking I should join Buff in doing just this. Near the end of his life, Lewis was also asked to name the authors that influenced his spiritual life. Two of the four included G.K. Chesterton and Dorothy L. Sayers. And if you want to know about the other two authors, Al has you covered in the show notes. C.S. Lewis had a fascinating correspondence with her. He actually wrote the eulogy for her funeral and called her that ogreish lady because he really appreciated her directness. So she was a very, very prickly woman. And she used to write to him and critique him. She thought he was far too, you know, drifting into areas he didn't know enough about. And she was kind of would write to him and tell him to stay in his lane sort of thing. Wonderful. Um, And he he loved that. So they had a fascinating correspondence. Sayers and Lewis's friendship evolved from professional colleagues to close friends in their 15-year correspondence. Among their many literary discussions were letters about their shared fascination with Dante's Divine Comedy, the epic Italian poem in which the narrator is guided through nine circles of hell, the inferno, then up to seven levels of the mountain of purgatory, Yeah, I don't believe in purgatory, but you know what I mean. And finally, up through the nine spheres of paradise. In 1943, Sayers read a book on Dante written by Lewis's friend and fellow inkling, Charles Williams. Sayers was entranced with the poem. In a letter to Lewis in 1946, she wrote, If one once gets a taste for Dante, one is liable to become a Dante addict. He acts like a drug or rather, like an attack of rabies. The people who were bitten rush madly about, biting all their friends. Sayers had well and truly been infected with Dante fever. So has producer Kaylee. you might like to know. Sayers perfected her archaic Italian, or Tuscan to be precise, because, you know, she could, and then published a very popular translation of Dante. And Lewis and the public loved what she came up with. You mentioned that she moved to doing a translation of Dante. Yeah. Why on earth? (laughs) And Uh, did she already have Italian from her degree or did she have to go and learn it? She had, well, she had a a little bit of Italian as she would have put it from, but her her main language at at university was French, but she had a bit of Italian and obviously brushed up somewhat on it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to translate Dante. So, but was that part of her fascination with drama? Um, yeah, or, or was there something so else complicated. she was trying to convey? Sayers had come to know Charles Williams through writing The Zeal for Thy House. He'd, he'd introduced her to the commissioning editors who were welcoming people to kind of write plays for the, the cathedral play cycles. And in 1943, she read Charles Williams' book on Dante, The Figure of Beatrice. And that just really captured her imagination. She was utterly, utterly compelled by this. And she unearthed the family's copy of The Inferno. And she read it in the bomb shelter in 1944. Wow, what a setting to read such a thing. You've got to remember in the Second World War, 
what that what that would have felt mm. like in mm. the Blitz mm. here in Britain, just being surrounded by that sort of trauma. Midway this way of life we're bound upon, I woke to find myself in a dark wood where the right road was wholly lost and gone. So she, she'd read Charles Williams and then she read The Inferno and she couldn't put it down. She couldn't even eat. She was just so drawn in. And she talked about being utterly enthralled. Now, what is probably important for listeners to know is that Sayers was a very intellectual person and quite a dry, prickly person, not an emotive person. So although she's this woman, you know, who's in the man's world, she spoke about her attraction to the Christian faith being purely intellectual. She's drawn to the intellectual pattern of the Christian faith. So she wouldn't have described having great esoteric, spiritual, mystical experiences. So for her, this level of being moved was was a new experience and um she said coming to him as i did for the first time rather late in life the impact of dante upon my unprepared mind was not in the least what i had expected <laughs> so she was drawn of course to the great kind of intellectual and theological vision behind behind the inferno but anyway yeah that's that was her experience with it and then she felt she wanted to to translate it to be more accessible so she had this kind of gift of of communication beginning in the advertising agency and then the detective fiction mass popular best-selling and then the plays taking you know, the Christian creeds and putting it on the stage and demonstrating how dramatic dogma is putting it on the BBC, mass communication. And I think she felt, having been so moved by Dante herself, she wanted to write a translation that connected with people a bit more. We must also be prepared, while we are reading Dante, to abandon any idea that we are the slaves of chance, or environment, or our subconscious, any vague notion that good and evil are merely relative terms, or that conduct and opinion do not really matter. Any comfortable persuasion that, however shiftlessly we muddle through life, it will somehow or other all come right. The Divine Comedy is precisely the drama of the soul's choice. She apparently wrote, am I right, 50,000 letters? Yeah, thousands of letters, yeah. I mean, that's hard to get my head around. Now, obviously, you've read a lot of the letters. What do you make of the woman? Because presumably the woman comes out, the human comes out more in her letters or not. I mean, was she very formal in her letters? Or do you, well, the can letters, you really get a yeah, sense of her? Yeah, is what I'm I think you can. So she's a very feisty woman. And so she has a correspondence, protracted correspondence sometimes with quite random people. <laughs> As it was in the day, I know Lewis was the same. He actually replied to people at length mm -hmm. and there was a lot of back and forth. So one of the interesting things about the Sayers Letters canon is if you read alongside then the published work, you see the development of ideas, often in dialogue, mm. and then, you know, the, the culmination of those ideas. The Mind of the Maker is a classic example of that. Dialogue beginning with correspondence around her play as ill for thy house, and then other ideas coming together. 
And then in amongst the letters are, are very kind of banal letters of, of order this and that and the other, or, you know, there's a lot about the dysfunctional transport system in Britain <laughs> and how frustrating trains are. And then you do get the sense of what it was actually like to live with rationing and, you know, the drudgery of the bombing raids and, and how disruptive all of that was. So even even the more banal letters actually give you an insight into into lived history. So you do you do get the sense of the woman, and I think she's more abrupt and a bit more prickly and even more feisty in the letters than in her writings. I want to play you a bit of tape from a fascinating discussion at the Marion E. Wade Centre here at Wheaton College a few years ago. The centre exists to promote the legacies of seven influential Christian literati, including C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton and Dorothy L. Sayers. The centre has a huge collection of Sayers letters. The centre's co-directors are Drs. David and Crystal Downing. They're reading from some of Sayers' correspondence. The first is a letter from a BBC listener who was not at all impressed by Sayers' The Man Born to be King. Dear Madam, I heard part of your radio play last night, but eventually switched it off and discussed that such drivel should be given over the air and that a person of your standing should write it. I can quite understand people of little education accepting and taking in things such as these, but you must have made research and inquiries into the actual so-called miracle. In view of your findings, I cannot understand why you should write a play based on a pack of lies. If you read the events upon which your play was based, you will no doubt feel heartily ashamed of yourself for being such a party to deceit. Yours faithfully, L.T. Duff. Dorothy perhaps replied a little too quickly. L.T. Duff, Esquire, I am sorry that you should have sustained such a shock. Is this really the first time you have realized that a large number of educated persons profess Christian faith? Let me beg you not to agitate yourself too much. For a person of excitable disposition like yourself, it is extremely wearing to live in a constant state of virtuous indignation. <laughs> Console yourself with despising us. Nothing is more soothing than to contemplate the folly and depravity of one's inferiors. Yours faithfully, Dorothy L. Sayers. Ouch! Dorothy, that sounds like a mid-20th century Twitter spat. The correspondence doesn't end there, and there are letters back and forth before Duff asks for a few suggestions of literature that might help him understand what Sayers and her ilk find so enchanting about the Christian faith. Sayers sends him a list of books, including C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain and a compilation of Lewis's broadcast talks. Then she writes a letter to Lewis himself. Meanwhile, I am left with the atheist on my hands. I do not want him. I have no use for him. I have no missionary zeal at all. The man keeps on bothering about miracles. He can't spell and has a mind like a junk shop. If he reads any of the books I recommended, he will write me long and disorderly letters about them. 
It will go on for years. I cannot bear it. Two of the books I recommended are yours. I only hope they will arouse him to fury. Then I will hand him on to you. <laughs> you like souls. I don't. God is simply taking advantage of the fact that I can't stand intellectual chaos, and it isn't fair. Anyhow, there aren't any up-to-date books about miracles. Please tell me what to do with this relic of the Darwinian age who is wasting my time, sapping my energies, and destroying my soul. Yours indignantly, Dorothy L. Sayers. <laughs> I love Dorothy Sayers, but I think I'd be terrified of her. By the way, Lewis responds to that letter to tell her he's going to write a book on miracles. This was a productive friendship. Can you tell me about your specific favourite things that she wrote? Maybe one of her more sort of theological or, you know, um, yeah. Christian books. Theological writing, her, probably my favourite of that is two essays she wrote. The first one is called Are Women Human? And the second is called The Human Not Quite So Human. So she's writing after first wave and second wave feminism have come through and she's arguing that women shouldn't be regarded as a sort of special category, and often feminism does that unintentionally. But she's arguing for this central humanity of women. And then she kind of culminates in, and she says, this is a question we need to ask in every sphere. Are you treating women as equally human, genuinely human? And it, it kind of culminates in this amazing quote where, she speaks about Jesus being unlike any other man and how women are first at the cradle and last at the cross. And that there's never actually been another man in, in human history who's regarded women as so fully human as Jesus did. Mm. So she kind of draws together the, the uniqueness of the role of women in the New Testament in kind of ancient history and draws that into debates around what feminism is and isn't. She does it brilliantly. And here's a grab from the essay. Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this. There never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronised, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them as either the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. Does she have a legacy, an impact? If so, what is it? If not, what do you wish her legacy were? So that's an interesting question. I mean, obviously, you know, Welsh and others regarded Sayers and Lewis as the, the kind of equal 
proponents of an orthodox vision of the Christian faith in, in public life. And you think how significant Lewis has gone on to be and how significant his writings have been, say his impact hasn't been the same. But actually in their day, her, her impact was probably more given the, the impact through the radio broadcasts and just the sheer scale of her popularity at the time. And for me, her, her significance, I think, is, and this is my, my thesis examines, is, is pulling together the role of um, narrative and story and what she called pattern, so a kind of coherent structure for, for truth and how she held those two together, not just conceptually, but she actually did it. So she was a Christian present in the arts in her day, you know, writing stories and creating plays and experiences for people that pointed people to, to theological truth. So I think she kind of stands as an example of how to do public Christianity, which is of interest certainly to me. Amy calls Dorothy L. Sayers the most effective female Christian apologist in the English-speaking world in the 20th century. I call her a great undeceiver. It's time many, many more people read her works. Her detective fiction, sure, but mostly her theological writings, her plays, her essays and books, and start with creed or chaos. She was truly subversive. She wanted to shock people out of their passivity and indifference into the things that really matter. That's the task of undeceiving. So let me give the last word to Dorothy L. Sayers in the voice of Maisie Redman. Official Christianity of late years has been having what is known as bad press. We are constantly assured that the churches are empty because preachers insist too much upon doctrine. Dull dogma, as people call it. The fact is the precise opposite. It is the neglect of dogma that makes for dullness. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that has ever staggered the imagination of man. And the dogma is the drama. This is the dogma we find so dull. This terrifying drama of which God is the victim and the hero. If this is dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? The people who hanged Christ, never to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certifying him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious ladies. To those who knew him, however, he in no way suggested a milk-and-water person. They objected to him as a dangerous firebrand.
If you like what we're doing here at Underceptions, you might like to become an Underceptions Plus subscriber. We call them our Underceivers for as little as $5 Aussie a month. You can get access to a private Facebook group to chat to me and other subscribers about the podcast. You can get bonus content from our episodes, lots and lots of bonus content. Head to underceptions.com forward slash plus to sign up today. If that's not for you, there's a bunch of other things you can do to support us, like head to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. Or why not go to underceptions.com and pick up one of our Underceptions t-shirts from the store. And while you're there, send us a question, either by audio or text, and I'll try and answer it in the upcoming Q&A episode. See ya. Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Mark Hadley. Sophie Hawkshaw is on socials and membership. Alistair Belling is a writer and researcher. Siobhan McGuinness is our online librarian. Lindy Leveston remains my wonderful assistant. Santino DeMarco is chief finance and operations consultant, editing by Richard Humwee. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for making this Underception possible. Underceptions is the flagship podcast of Underceptions.com. Letting the truth out. An Undeceptions podcast.